Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. This year's Honors College Lecture Series has the theme of social justice. As part of that theme, Dr. Lewis Woods, an associate professor of history, delivered a presentation titled Race and the Policy of Exclusion, Structural Racism and the Construction of Place, February 9th, virtually, of course. The presentation and Q&A focused on housing and the ways in which African-Americans have been marginalized in their attempts to become homeowners. There's no place like home if you can get one after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU's observance of National Women's History Month will be an appreciation of more than 100 years of American women's suffrage. Valiant Women of the Vote Refusing to be Silenced, which would have been the theme of last year's calendar of events, if not for the COVID-19 pandemic, is this year's theme. The campus community will celebrate the passage of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was adopted officially on August 26, 1920. The amendment reads, in full, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Mary Frances Berry, former chair of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission through four different presidential administrations, will deliver the keynote address at 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 16th. Musician and dancer Nabuko Miyamoto will share music and moments from her memoir with collaborator Deborah Wong at 2 p.m. Tuesday the 16th. Miyamoto will discuss her community-building work, social justice lessons from Asian Americans, intercultural coalition building, and allyship among women from different communities. Meg Brooker, MTSU's Director of Dance, will explore Florence Fleming Noyes' Dance of Freedom in a lecture and demonstration at 6 p.m. Wednesday, March 17th, in room G040B of Murphy Center, with limited seating, social distancing, and campus COVID-19 protocols. This presentation will use archival film and newspaper records, as well as dancing, to depict the role of dance in the women's suffrage movement, particularly the change from physical restraint to freedom of movement. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Hi, Lewis. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sometimes people want to reduce acts of discrimination down to bad actors, you know, anomalies, uh, if you will. But the information you presented showed that it was definitely systemic housing discrimination, that it was baked into the cake. Talk about some of that evidence. Yeah, I mean, the federal government historically, um, <clears throat> unlike when you start talking about civil rights legislation or civil rights uh, history, the federal government um, didn't create housing segregation, but they certainly made it worse. They exacerbated it. And <clears throat> they did that essentially by investing billions of dollars into the American housing market through mortgage insurance um, and mortgage guarantees, depending on the federal agency. Um, and then they associated good practices essentially with um, expanding residential segregation. And so if I'm a bank and um, averse to risk, then if the Federal Housing Administration or the Veterans Administration um, with GI Bill loans or with federally insured mortgage loans 
says that when black and brown people move into a neighborhood that <clears throat> that has a bad or adverse effect on the value of the property, right? It makes it worse. Then even if I don't want to discriminate in, for example, the FHA or Federal Housing Administration, they guaranteed 80% of the mortgage federally. And then they put in 20, the homeowner put down 20% at closing. So the, the total value of the home was covered, even if the individual homeowner went into default and the federal government, I mean, the bank who made that loan could take five, four or 5% interest a year for 30 years with no risk. Who's not going to do that if you're a banking institution, right? And so <clears throat> when you create these incentives to discriminate, um, federal incentives to discriminate uh, and to keep housing segregated, um, it becomes much more than individual choice or individual actions on the part of, you know, one discriminatory homeowner, it essentially becomes um, the federal government picking winners and losers. One of the phrases that really got me in your discussion of redlining by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was a federal entity created in the 30s, I believe, yep. uh, was goats, rabbits, and dark-skinned babies. Yeah. I like all three of those. They're all sweet and they're all cute, <laughs> yeah, but they're hardly comparable. Right. <laughs> Talk about that. Sure. So the language that uh, the Homeowner Loan Corporation are the is the federal agency that was most associated with um, creating redlining, the concept of drawing maps <clears throat> and color coding them by the condition of housing, but also by the residents. And whenever um, a community had uh, black or brown people in it, it was, it received a red uh, designation and that designation was also considered hazardous. So a hazardous red uh, bank investment. And they had in the area descriptions of specific portions of, um, of cities, uh, the language is off, off the chart. In the area descriptions, they would talk about the race of the community. So they had a, a foreign born section and a percentage they had a Negro <clears throat> section and percentage, and then they had an infiltration section where they were talking about people who were not who were considered undesirable um, or potentially people who could create a hazardous um, uh, bank investment. How many of them were coming in and who they were? And so, <clears throat> in this one area in Los Angeles, which um, is area D fifty seven, mapping inequalities is incredible website that has digitized many of the redlining maps from the 1930s and 40s uh, from the Homeowner Loan Corporation. And this particular section is called is uh, D47. It was an all of Mexican ancestry neighborhood. And they that's how they described um, the community, um, the infiltration of goats, rabbits and dark skinned babies indicated. And so uh, they also described it as a, a semi-tropical <clears throat> countryside slum. Um, and they said it was like the army mule. It had uh, no pride of ancestry or hope of posterity. That's how they described that particular neighborhood. Really hard hitting language. But <clears throat> that kind of language is, is baked into the way that this federal agency appraised uh, communities. And um, they created infiltration surveys. I've seen some of that in, in places in San Francisco and Oakland. Um, the way that they talk about people of color is, is it, it makes you clutch your pearls today, you know, in, in, our, in, our, in our current uh, status, sure. 
um, there have been follow-up studies that have compared uh, current, um, so looking at the redlining maps, the neighborhoods that were red and yellow, right, are you know, definitely declining or hazardous, um, and their socioeconomic status today. And well over 70% of these communities remain impoverished to this day. Um, and so <clears throat> there is a generational implication for um, this kind of systemic divestment of neighborhoods and, and communities. We'll take a break here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. Terra wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking with Dr. Lewis Woods, who is an associate professor of history. Uh, He delivered an honors college lecture on uh, housing discrimination as part of their social justice theme on February the 9th, February being uh, Black History Month, among other aspects of this topic. What is blockbusting and how did it work? Great question. Um, So real estate agents took, took they, they were able to essentially um, take advantage of this kind of generational uh, divestment from the federal government and profit off of it. And so one of the ways that real estate agencies would profit from um, this kind of uh, propensity by the federal government to, to, um, to segregate or to, or to contribute to housing discrimination um, <clears throat> was they would take a a, a black family who couldn't often get, it was hard, harder for them to get loans, harder for them to get uh, mortgage lending, but they were desperate to leave some of the overcrowded and dilapidated housing stock that they were forced to live in. And so <clears throat> when a black family with means was able to escape the inner city um, community that was, you know, ha- had much inferior housing stock and housing um, inadequate stuff like no heat sometimes, no running water or bathrooms that you had to share with multiple families. Wanting to get out of that system, out of rat infested places, um, would get into a suburban white community, would buy at an extreme premium in terms of the price. And then the real estate agents would go around to the neighborhood neighbors and say, look, a black person just moved over there. They're coming and encourage essentially panic selling, right? Oh God, my, my neighborhood, my property is gonna go down, my value is gonna go down, let me sell quickly. And so then, um, you know, for sale signs would go up all over, the, <laughs> all over that block. And then as people left, they would take the loss assuming that they would lose more. And so that they would sell their home for less than it was worth. And then when the uh, real estate agents would profit off of that because as people of more people of color moved in, 
they could then sell it at a premium. So they, they, they elicited panic selling, um, you know, ginning up racial fear and anxiety, and then selling to blacks who were willing to pay more to get out of those conditions that they were in. And so it was really a, a real estate racket playing on racial fear. Something you talked about reminded me of A Raisin in the Sun, Lorraine Hansberry's play. I never saw the play, but I did see the movie with Sidney Poitier and Claudia McNeil. And it's all about what a family goes through trying to decide what to do with the late father's insurance money. Mama wants to buy a house. The son wants to buy a liquor store. Uh, and the sister wants to go to college and become a doctor. And the only way they could ever have or hope to have the opportunity for that was for daddy to pass away and leave the insurance money. And uh, I was reminded of that when you talked about your grandfather uh, and the GI Bill uh, in your lecture. Tell us your grandfather's story. Yeah. Uh, so my grandfather was on a, sh- on a naval ship, one of only two in World War II history with the predominantly Black crew. Uh, it was called the USS Mason. <clears throat> and so like over a million Black veterans of World War II, he had access to, in, on paper, no down payment, uh, federal <clears throat> um, mortgage loan, federally guaranteed and insured mortgage loan, because the FHA and the EV, Veterans Administration worked together on the GI Bill loans. And so veterans could come home with no down payment and buy a house, right? And so my grandfather had, in theory, had that, had, had that access, but um, they tried repeatedly to purchase homes. Um, my mom was born in the South Bronx uh, where the family was able to live and they had lived in Harlem before then. And then uh, when they started looking at, at homes um, in the suburbs, right? <clears throat> Westchester and Long Island, et cetera, et cetera um, they repeatedly couldn't access, even though they could technically uh, afford it, um, it was very difficult to overcome barriers. And so <clears throat> it took my grandfather 21 years to buy a house. And one of the stories that they, that they told me um, a, a lot, um, my grandmother was from New Orleans and very light or, or light-skinned complexioned. Uh, she had this like, generational octoroon or one-eighth black uh, ancestry. So. Um, you could look at my grandmother and if you didn't know any better, assume that she was a white woman. And so um, some, they tell me a story about when they were trying to buy homes in, in, in Long Island, um, how, you know, back before you had automated uh, locks and stuff on your doors, my grandmother would take, take off and walk out uh, directly to the real estate agent and my grandfather would go around locking the doors, you know, manually, right? <clears throat> and it would take him maybe 20, 30 seconds behind my grandmother. And so when my grandmother arrived, the real estate agent would assume she was the, a white real estate agent and not my grandfather's wife. And she would whisper, we can never sell to, you know, this guy, there's no way we can sell to this person. And she was like, she's no, no way can we can sell to them. And she, my grandmother would say, you know, that's my husband. I am them, right? And then the, you know, real estate agent's face would get red and she'd stumble over her words or whatever. And they told that story a lot. And what's interesting was that it took them, so my grandfather came back from World War II in 1945, wasn't able to purchase a home until 1966. And at that point, the GI Bill had ended. Um, 
you know, 11 years earlier, right? And so <clears throat> not only did he lose a, home, a generation of home equity, um, but the property that he was eventually able to purchase, which was in a formerly uh, all or predominantly white neighborhood, flipped to a predominantly Latino and black neighborhood in about a, a year or two. So it's a similar process to the block busting. Um, <clears throat> what my grandfather experienced was something that a lot of people of uh, his generation had the experience who were able to purchase homes. Talk about the salmon analogy you made uh, when it comes to the cumulative impact of all of this stress on people over time. Not that we're getting back to comparing human <laughs> beings to animals again, but <laughs> yeah, right. oh, it's, 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 uh, it's totally an analogy. When you're swimming with a mighty current, even if you stop to rest, the current will propel you forward and, and push you towards your, 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 your goal. Um, I think that when you're on the wrong side of these systems and structures, it's kind of like a salmon swimming upstream. Uh, it requires energy. It requires effort just to stay stagnant, just to stay where you are. <clears throat> but the salmon swim against the mighty current and they're able to jump out of the water, propel themselves from one socioeconomic plane to another. And when they hit the next level, they keep swimming and they have to do that over and over and over again until they get to the top of the riverbed. But when they jump out of the water, what's waiting for them is a ferocious bear with teeth and claws waiting to chomp them up. And so, you know, the salmon that can get from one plane to the next has to swim hard, faster than the current, jump out of the current, dodge the bare teeth and claws, and then keep moving. And so those salmon that get to the top of the riverbed have seen lots of their friends who tried to make that similar journey get snatched up by the bear or <laughs> get pushed back by the current. And so in my analogy, <clears throat> the current are those systems, those structures that may not be visible, right? The, the current is not visible to the salmon, but it clearly impacts the salmon's progress. <laughs> At least the salmon's Hobbesian society is natural. Uh, the uh, human being's Hobbesian society is man-made. Right. We do it to each other. Yep, absolutely. And it's, and it's structural and it's intentional. Um, those are acts of policy, right? There's, they're not, they didn't just happen out of nowhere, right? They didn't just materialize. This was something that people put to paper this is how we are going to structure the, the system, sure. And I think that's part of the, what makes it so egregious is that um, <clears throat> many of us don't even see uh, how these systems and structures work. And, you know, another analogy I like to use is it's kind of like, you know, if you're born on third base, use a baseball analogy. If you're born on third base, you're 90 feet away from a score. There are people who are, you know, not even born in the same um, you know, they're not even, they're not even, they're born in the dugout or not even in the stadium, right? And so I think part of the struggle is that um, <clears throat> one of the things I tell students a lot, the only fair comparison is comparing yourself with, uh, with your, with your, you know, elders and ancestors, right? That's the only fair comparison. If you compare yourself with other people, you don't know where they, where they stood, right? Whether they were swimming with the current or against it, <laughs> right? Born on third base or in the dugout. <clears throat> and so, you know, depending on where you're born, it, what station in the society you're born into, you may feel bad about your, your situation. But when you start looking back at elders and ancestors, you start to realize there's been bigger progress than maybe you might think if you compare it to somebody else. 
we have some people, I think, that congratulate themselves for being born on third base and other people who berate themselves for not being born on the playing field, right? And I think that as a country, what we don't realize oftentimes is we profess to be about hard work equaling up upward mobility um, and that where you end up in society is purely a byproduct of your own hard work and ingenuity. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, who worked harder than the enslaved, right? <laughs> um, you know, the GI Bill allowed folks with no, not a lot of money to be able to purchase a home. And because you spread out the amortization schedule or the paying back of the mortgage schedule for 30 years, it made home ownership cheaper than, than renting, right? And so most Americans, 30% um, of the country owned a home in 1930, and that number doubles in, by 1960. And it's not because Americans just started saving. It's because of these federal policies. And so the problem for people on the wrong side of these structures and systems is that less black people own a home today than white people did in the year 1940. And that's the generational impact, right? <clears throat> yeah, it's important to understand systems and structures, I think, because if you don't, you, you, you congratulate yourself too much or you blame yourself too much, depending on which side of the federal government policies you're on. And it's a really, if you wanna understand how policy works generationally, I think housing is, a, is one of the best areas because where you live influences your, your, your destiny where you live, your zip code. There's a, uh, a Tennessean um, op-ed I saw recently by a Vanderbilt medical doctor who was talking about how zip code in Nashville can influence um, up to six years difference in life expectancy from one zip code to the next within the same city. <clears throat> and so, you know, if, if, you're, if you're not able to live as long, you can, you can imagine wealth, you can imagine educational opportunities, right? Zip code is destiny. And so where we live oftentimes was, was shaped by, by policies that we don't even see. We'll take another break here. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of Fire. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Lewis Woods, Associate Professor of History, who uh, delivered a presentation on racial discrimination as part of the University Honors College Lecture Series, Spring Lecture Series with the theme of social justice. I looked this up. There have been, since the creation of the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, six secretaries of that department at the federal level who were either Black or Hispanic. Yeah. Now, presumably, a person of color in a position of authority would be more sympathetic to racial discrimination in housing, but was this just political window dressing? And how much difference does the person at the top make anyway? 
That's a great question. Well, so part of the challenge is that, you know, when the federal government started to redress these issues, right, started to outlaw redlining, outlaw blockbusting, outlaw some of the more um, unapologetically discriminatory practices in housing, um, what they didn't do, so this, the the Fair Housing Act or the Civil Rights Act of 68 um, started to, to outlaw and make these, these policies illegal. What it didn't do was enforce uh, properly those folks who were habitual discriminators, right? So it didn't, it didn't penalize them enough, right? So a person who was re- a repeat discriminator against people of color in housing in 1968 was only fined $1,000 uh, for being a habitual discriminator. And so it's uh, one scholar <clears throat> said that that's like uh, giving a $2 parking ticket. <laughs> Like it doesn't, it's not a, pe- a strong enough pen- penalty to change behavior. Um, in 1988, <clears throat> what they did, um, they amended the, the Civil Rights Act of 68 or the Fair Housing Act of 68, and they made habitual discriminators have to pay $100,000 per repeat offense. And so, <clears throat> you know, HUD, to, to address your question directly, the HUD directors were hamstrung on some level by the enforcement or the lack of enforcement um, uh, for habitual discriminators. And so I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is that once the federal government participates in stigmatizing black and brown people in neighborhoods, that stigma doesn't go away even when you change policies. And so um, people's idea about what a a good school is oftentimes is partly wrapped up in the demographics of that school. I mean, obviously the test scores, of course, but also the, the, the demographic makeup of the school. And that's part of that legacy of stigma. My wife and I moved to East Nashville a couple of years ago, but for nine years, we lived on the, on the uh, Brentwood and Antioch border, right? Which our neighbors like to say Brentioch, right? But it's, it's Antioch. But they said Brentioch because they wanted to differentiate themselves with Antioch on the like near the former mall, which is now Nashville right. State, which is <clears throat> overwhelmingly uh, a diverse, you know, black brown um, uh, community. And and so <clears throat> part of the times that's that stigma that the federal government helped construct through its policies influences people's behavior, even though the the, the law no longer supports that kind of, or encourages that kind of stigma. Uh, HUD directors, right? They're basically asking for mediation and they can't enforce against, in a, in a forceful way against uh, habitual discriminators, but also the stigma piece is also a process that would also make it more difficult for HUD directors and directors of color to change hearts and minds, essentially. We thank you, Lewis, for being our guest today on MTSU On The Record. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We'll be right back. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. 
The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Stephanie Barrett has the middle moment. MTSU's College of Graduate Studies recently reported its highest spring semester enrollment in history. The college's associate dean, Don McCormick, sat down with MTSU News to share more about this milestone. MTSU's College of Graduate Studies recently reported its highest spring semester enrollment in history. The college's associate dean, Don McCormick, sat down with MTSU News to share more about this milestone. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.